Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. All right. Good morning, everybody. We'll begin today's uh, Sunday School lesson with a word of prayer. So, dear Lord, we thank you for the gathering of your people here today. And we ask you, our Heavenly Father, just to send your spirit as we as a collective body are reading through your word in 2008. We ask you to continually invigorate us, encourage us, and motivate us, and to illuminate us as we read your word and process the richness and depth and treasures of meaning found in your inerrant revelation to us. We ask you, Heavenly Father, to bless this lesson here today, that the hearts and minds of all those who will hear will be blessed by the power of your word. Amen. Amen. Okay. So today will be the uh, second installment in our series, The Bible Made Ridiculously Simple. And today we're going to give everyone a brief overview of the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy. It's the, the Bible's second through fifth book. Now, when we take a step back and look at the first five books of the Bible as a whole, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those five books, the fancy word for that collection of five books is called the Pentateuch which means a five-volume book. And when we take a look at the Pentateuch as a whole, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the really, really big idea of that five-volume book is that God reveals himself to humankind. He reveals how he begins and has a relationship with a chosen group of people. And then it also defines historically how a community of people how a community of believers who has an adoration, who love and serve God, how they organize themselves as a body and as a society in worship of God Almighty. So the Pentateuch tells us who God is, what he has done, and historically what he has done, and how we have a relationship with him. And what Israel was in the Old Testament, a group of people that define themselves in relation to God, that is a mirror of what the churches now in modern day. So, as I mentioned, the Pentateuch is about history. The events in Genesis were history. When God said, let there be light, that was a historical event. When the Israelites were liberated from, from Egypt, that was a historical event. When the Israelites constructed the tabernacle in the wilderness, that was a historical event. So while the Pentateuch is a book about history, which is relevant, there's also a spiritual application of those historical events. So in Genesis, for example, we see what? We see the fall of humankind, where man is ruined because of sin. 
In Exodus, God delivered his people, the Israelites, out of Egyptian bondage. That happened historically. Spiritually speaking now, Exodus represents the start of God's relationship with us, where we couldn't liberate ourselves from bondage, but he extends his hand and delivers us out. In Leviticus, historically, we see the people of God in the wilderness, where God now says, okay, Israelites, now that I've delivered you from bondage, I'm going to explain and instruct to you how you are to live. So Leviticus now now shows us, now that we have a relationship with God, our lives are going to be ordered differently. In the book of Numbers now, historically, the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness. While the old generation of rebellion, they perished, and the new generation of faith was born. So now spiritually, as we mature and we have experience in our walk with God, the old self, the old rebellious self, begins to perish, and the new self that trusts in God flourishes and begins to live. In Deuteronomy, historically, we find the people of God literally on the border of the promised land. They're about to step into and to inherit a promise. And Deuteronomy tells us we are to love God and return to his instruction. So in the spiritual life of a believer today, Deuteronomy represents the individual or the group of people who now returns to God's word in anticipation of inheriting a life of blessings. So that's the really, really big helicopter view of Genesis through Deuteronomy. So now let's get into the specific books. So last time we talked about the book of Genesis, and Genesis neatly transitions us into the book of Exodus. So in Genesis, we have Father Abraham. Father Abraham has a son called Isaac. Isaac has a son called Jacob who was later named Israel. Father Jacob was the father of 12 sons, who would then become the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's fourth son, Judah, ends up being the line, the biological, he gives birth to the line that would end up giving birth to Jesus Christ. And Jacob basically passes the scepter or the symbol of authority and kingship to Judah, which would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. At the end of Genesis, we see a movement of Jacob's family. It's 70 people in total. And they move from Canaan, which is modern-day Israel, into Egypt. And those descendants would end up having families and multiplying. And that now sets the stage for us being an exodus. So at the end of Genesis, Jacob and his, and his family moves from Israel to Egypt. Hundreds of years later, you have a gross proliferation of those people. And that sets the stage for the beginning of exodus. And... Genesis 46:27 tells us that 70 people moved, Jacob plus 69 other people, moved from Canaan to Egypt. Hundreds of years later, conservatively speaking, the descendants of Jacob now were in excess of 2 million people. 
which tells us that the promise God made to Abraham further back in Genesis, where he said, I promise to give you descendants, God kept his promise. So Exodus tells us God was already beginning to fulfill his trustworthy promises to Abraham at the beginning of Exodus. There are two men that serve as great transition points for the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. Joseph was a man who was sold into bondage by his brothers. He begins life as a shepherd. He ends life as a prince in Egypt. Now there's a mirror. Now we're in Exodus. Moses now begins life as a prince in Egypt, and he ends life as a shepherd leading the people of Israel in the wilderness. So one goes up and the other comes down. It's a nice little transition point from Genesis to Exodus. So, the book of Exodus. What is the big idea? The big idea of the book of Exodus is that it is a story of redemption by blood and power. The big idea of Exodus means the way out. And the big idea of the book of Exodus is that it tells the story of redemption by blood and power. So that's the the big, big, big idea. Underneath that that main idea now, you have three subheadings in the book of Exodus. You have number one, the Exodus itself, the way out. You have number two, the giving of the law. And you have number three, the tabernacle. So the first subheading in the book of Exodus is the Exodus itself, the way out. So, the end of Genesis, we have Joseph. He was a son of Jacob. He ended his life as a prince, the number two in command in the nation of Egypt. He is someone that Pharaoh knew. They were buddies. They were friends. Joseph was Pharaoh's right-hand man. Back then, Pharaoh knew the God of Joseph. He knew Joseph's family members. Fast forward now 400 years. Now you have a new Pharaoh that did not know the God of Joseph, that did not know the people of God, that did not know to to him who were foreign people in his land. In Exodus 5, this is what Pharaoh says, when given the option of letting the Israelites go, he says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. This is an excellent point. Because guess what? At that point in history, no one knew who God was. At that point in history, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, Jehovah, unless you were a familial biological descendant of Abraham, you didn't know who God was. If you asked a Greek, if you asked a Roman, if you asked someone in East Asia, no one would have known because up until this point in history, The only way God had revealed himself was to the patriarchs, Father Abraham and his sons, and mothers and fathers would therefore tell their children about what God had done. So Pharaoh was actually making a very rational, intelligent point. There was no Bible back then. There was only the oral tradition 
of parents passing the stories down to their children. So now what does God do? He sees his people in bondage in Egypt because the Egyptians that did not know the Israelites began to oppress them and they were enslaved. They cry out to God, God hears their voice, and then he sets them free. Now why? There's a specific reason why God set his people free. Why did he do it? Why did the Exodus happen? Yes, to worship. As it says in Exodus 7:16, I will set my people free so that they will worship me in the wilderness. God did not set his people free as a function of social justice. He didn't do it as a program of political reform. He did it so that his people would be free from Egyptian idolatry and so that they could worship him in the wilderness. Who did God send to be the mediator to set his people free? Moses. In other words, God sent a mediator. God sent a go-between, someone who could be God's representative that could stand in between God and Pharaoh and that could stand in between God and God's people to be the natural means by which the exodus could be facilitated. And this gives us a core idea that God always works for human beings by using human beings, right? God didn't send an angel. God didn't send an invisible force. God sent a real flesh and bones human being to be the mediator to set his people go. And Moses, being a mediator in the Old Testament, basically points forward to the new Moses, who is Jesus Christ, who is a mediator between God and humankind. And to understand then what Christ does in the New Testament, we have to understand what Moses did in the Old Testament, being a mediator who led, who shepherded the people of God from slavery and bondage into freedom. So what the Exodus now ends up being is a contest of sovereigns. As I said, the world in general at that point in history did not know who God was. Pharaoh back then was regarded as sovereign. He was regarded as ruler of the entire world. He was regarded as being sovereign over humankind. The Exodus now happens and it becomes a battle between Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and Pharaoh. And the winner of that sovereignty contest, their people would now be free to worship their own God as they see fit. Now, how did God accomplish the Exodus? How did he do it? Ten plagues. Ten plagues. Excellent. Now, why did God send ten plagues? God could have snapped his fingers as Israelites were free. He could have done that, right? He could have sent an earthquake and swallowed up all of Egypt, and now all the Israelites were now free. So specifically, why did God use ten plagues as the means to set his people free? Specifically speaking, the reason why God used ten supernatural, miraculous plagues 
Remember, the Exodus was a contest of sovereigns who's really king of kings, right? So what each plague was designed to do was to expose Egyptian idolatry. Now let's explain this. Each plague that God sent was a supernatural, miraculous act. Stuff happened that no scientist, no politician, no doctor, no lawyer, no accountant could explain. Each plague now happened for a reason and was meant to expose a particular Egyptian god. For example, the first plague was turning water into blood. That was God showing the Egyptian people, hey, your god happy? who's in charge of water, they don't exist. They're not real. I'm going to show you that I am God by, number one, commanding this plague to happen, number two, telling you when it's going to happen, and number three, telling you when it's going to stop. When God sent the plague of boils on people, that was exposing the Egyptian goddess of Isis, who is goddess over medicine, that she is helpless to help the people. When God blotted out the sun for three days, that was an embarrassment to the Egyptian god Ra, who was god over the sun. And the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, was God showing everyone, Egyptian and, and Israelites alike, that Pharaoh is not sovereign. The world at that time didn't know who God was, and with the ten plagues, God was saying, I am God. Now allow me to introduce myself by showing to you that the only one who's in charge of these supernatural happenings is me. As God himself says in Exodus 7:5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. And at the end of each plague happening, the rational, logical conclusion, it was a public spectacle, plague after plague after plague, and the reason why there were 10 plagues is because, biblically speaking, 10 is a number of completeness. So God was completely, symbolically speaking, demonstrating his sovereignty in Egypt. So after now all the plagues were done, the point was now made clear that no natural power, no human being, no political entity can wrestle with God and win. The tenth plague now was important. In the tenth plague, God basically said, my angel will come into the land of Egypt and slay the firstborn of everything, human beings, animals alike. And God said, this is going to happen. But he also told his people, my judgment is going to come on the land but the way in which someone can endure, the way in which someone can survive judgment, is if you take the blood of an unblemished one-year-old lamb and sprinkle it on the doorposts, the horizontal and vertical beams of your door. And when that angel now comes into Egypt and sees the blood on the door of your houses, they will now pass over your house, and you will survive judgment. 
the point of the Passover, God was telling the world, God was telling the world, judgment is coming. I'm the one who's going to bring judgment. And the way in which you survive judgment is by following this specific algorithm, this specific plan. The Passover was demonstrating that salvation is wrought by God and salvation is also wrought from God. The only way an individual were to survive judgment then was to listen to God's word. There was no plan B, there was no plan C, no individual could go about it its own way. And the final plague was also God demonstrating his power over the ultimate thing in our natural world, life itself. And just as the Passover was a historical event which only happened once in history, what the Jews ended up doing is celebrating the Passover yearly. They would rehearse the event happening so they would never forget what God did for them in Egypt. Now, connection to the New Testament. What Jesus did before he was crucified during the Passover meal, he basically said, hey, everybody, listen. This Passover was really about me. I'm now going to institute a new, a new sacrament called communion, where this is my bread that will be broken for you. This is the cup that will contain my blood. Jesus was now telling everyone the Passover was a foreshadowing of his sacrifice on the cross. And just how the Passover happened once, his crucifixion on the cross happened once. But what do we now do? We rehearse and do communion with a particular frequency so we, know we don't forget and we shall remember what God did for the world now in liberating people from the bondage of sin and death. And if it's not crystal clear already, what the Passover really was about was Christ, because just how people then were saved by the blood of the Lamb, John the Baptist says in the New Testament, looking at Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And when God now looks at someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ and says, Lord Jesus, you are my Lord and my God, you are now covered by his blood and the wrath of God passes over you, passes over me, and God is now free to deal with you in grace. So whenever I get into discussions with, you know, particularly people of other faiths, particularly people who are Jewish, I never have to go to the New Testament and talk about Christ. I don't need Luke. I don't need John. I don't need Mark. The gospel is right there in Exodus because the Passover ultimately isn't about the Passover. It points forward to Jesus. So that's all the first uh, of the three sub-themes in Exodus, the Exodus itself, the way out. So the tenth plague hits. Pharaoh finally says, all right, he lets the Israelites go. The sea is parted. Moses leads his people through the sea, and they are then uh, marching through the wilderness. Three months after the people of Israel are uh, liberated, they find themselves at the base of Mount Sinai. And that is where God himself descends on the top of the mountain and gives people what's called the law or the Mosaic law. 
These are 600 plus specific rules, guidelines, stipulations, and commandments that instructed the people how they are now to live now that they've been set free. Now here's the most important thing. Whenever you talk about the Mosaic Law and the Ten Commandments are the first Ten Commandments in the Mosaic Law, whenever you talk about the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament Law, the Mosaic Law as a whole, you cannot consider the law out of the context in which it was given. Let me say that again. You can never consider the the Law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, out of the context in which it was given. How did God orchestrate this for his people? He extends his hand and liberates his people first. He sets them free first. He does something miraculous and supernatural that only God could do. He then delivers them to a place of safety. And then when they are camped now at the base of the mountain, it is then that God gives his instructions. Basically, God was saying, I'm the one, I took the first step. I set you free to live first. Now that you are free to worship me, I'm now going to show you how. And these rules and stipulations now define the new life, the new liberated life his people were to follow. The the Mosaic law was given in the context of relationship, which is why God himself even says in Exodus 19 to 20, he doesn't start by saying, thou shall, thou shall not. He says, remember, I am the Lord your God who set you free. And the next thing that he says is he begins giving the Mosaic law in totality. And when you look at all of the commandments given by God, ultimately, what the Mosaic law is about is Worship. God sets his people free in the Exodus, so they are now free to worship. And now God shows his people how to worship with all his commandments, right? What are the first four commandments? Commandment number one is, I am God, you don't get anybody else, right? Commandment number two is, don't make anything that looks like me. Commandment number three is, don't mess with my name. Commandment number four is, don't mess with my day. What's the, what's the point of all that? What's the thrust? The thrust is worship. Because if God is at the geographic center of your life, those are the natural, logical contours by which your life will be organized. So again, the thrust of the Mosaic Law at its core is about worship. The third major theme in the book of Exodus is the tabernacle. Someone please tell me what the tabernacle was. This is big. It was a house where God's presence was, yes, but more specific than that. What was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was a central place of worship because before the tabernacle was constructed, guess what? Did the Hebrews have any temple? No. Did they have any church to go to? No. The tabernacle was a central place of worship. The tabernacle literally 
was an intersection point in our material world between the natural realm and God. It literally speaking is where God descended and the tabernacle now was the intersection point of God and humanity. So if you're paying attention, it is readily obvious that the tabernacle once again wasn't about the tabernacle, it was pointing forward to Jesus Christ. The tabernacle was a physical mobile structure. It was a mobile sanctuary that God commanded its people to build, which could be erected, it could be deconstructed, and then moved around. So, when the Israelites spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, the tabernacle was their mobile sanctuary. And it was, God was very specific and detailed in the regulations he gave for how that structure was to be built. So this church, we use references, allusions to the tabernacle a lot. When we say the outer court, when we say the laver, the wash basin, the red veil, the, uh, the tent of meeting, all of those things refer to structures in the tabernacle itself. And in the ancient Near East in those days, whether you were trading or going to war, the king's tent was always in the center of whomever was traveling. So guess where the tabernacle was according to God's commandments in wilderness? Dead in the center. So the, the people of Israel literally organized their entire camp with the tabernacle in the center. That was God symbolically telling the people, in this central place of worship, you are now organizing yourselves as a, as a nation with me, God, at the center. So in essence, what the tabernacle was, it was God's tent for his people as they wandered in the wilderness. So the exodus was God setting his people free to worship. The law showed people how to worship and the tabernacle God showed his people where to worship. Now what happened in the tabernacle? What did the Israelites do? Louder. Sacrifice. The point of the tabernacle is this. You had a priest. You had a mediator that was going between an Israelite and God. And the way to approach God was by blood, was by sacrifice, was by the sacrifice of a different type of animal, a goat, a bull. And what God was showing his people is that the way you approach the God of the Bible, the way you approach a holy God, is by blood, is by sacrifice. God was telling his people, when it comes to paying the debt of sin, either you die or something else dies. Either you die or something else dies. That is, way, that is why the way to approach God was by blood. And as I mentioned before, because the tabernacle was a central place of worship, the, it, it was a sacralization of both time and space that points forward to Christ. In John 1 now, John says that the Word, or Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. That English word dwelt comes from a Greek root that means Jesus pitched his tent or tabernacled among us. So just how the tabernacle was a mobile place of worship, Jesus Christ now was God in the flesh who walked around the face of the while he was here on earth. 
Okay. Leviticus is next. The book of Exodus ends by the people of Israel finishing the construction of the tabernacle and then the glory of God fills it. So now we have a question. Now we have a question. What do we now do in this tabernacle? Okay, God, we built this marvelous structure. There's gold and there's wood and there's, there's silver. Now what do we do? That's the question Leviticus answers. Leviticus now tells the people what actually is going to happen in the tabernacle itself. Leviticus picks up and then gives the order and rules of worship in the tabernacle. And the big idea of the book of Leviticus is one word. Someone tell me what the big idea of Leviticus is. The big idea of the book of Leviticus is holiness. Leviticus 10.10 says, And so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean. Leviticus 20.26 says, God speaking to his people and says, Thus you are to be holy to me, for I am the Lord, I am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. The big idea of the book of Leviticus is Holiness. Leviticus is the great book on worship of a holy God and how he is to be glorified by a holy people. So if the big idea of Leviticus is holiness, what is holiness? Someone tell me. Because guess what? We all here are called to be holy. So what are we doing? What is holiness? We are supposed to worship God, but specifically, what is holiness? Clean is is beginning to get there. Holiness is... The best definition of holiness in the Bible is separate, is other. Holiness means separation from something in order to be separated to something. Let's take a step back, put it all in context. God sets his people free from Egypt. Now they are in the wilderness. Now they're, they're going to be attached to something. So they're set free from the Egyptian way of life, from Pharaoh, from Egyptian idolatry. Now they're going to be attached to who? To God. And what Leviticus now does, it gives the specific contours and guidelines of what that actually means to be called out and separate from anything else. Now let's be 100% honest. We now as a church, we're going to end our reading of the book of Leviticus this week. Let's be honest. Is Leviticus fun to read? Is it exciting? Does it thrill the imagination? And the answer is no. If you say yes, you are lying. Let's be really honest. Superficially, Leviticus seems dry. It seems remote. It seems as if it doesn't have any particular relevance to 2018. Leviticus talks about ritual law, sacrifices, liturgy, instructions, washings. Leviticus gets so specific. It says if you commit a sin, you can't use three-tenths of an ephah. You can't use nine-tenths. You must use one-tenth of an ephah. Leviticus gets so much into the nitty-gritty, it tells you what to do if you have a scab. Now, what's, what's the point of all that? 
how does this relate? What is God actually trying to tell us? This is what God is trying to relay. All of the minutia, all of the specific stipulations that God gives in the book of Leviticus, they're physical exercises that are meant to point to a greater spiritual truth. All the guidelines God gives in, in Leviticus point to something bigger and greater than itself. God telling us in Leviticus that he's concerned with our diet, he's concerned with our dress, he's concerned with our health, he's concerned with our social relationships, is God telling us he always meant to be involved in our business. He always was designed to be involved in the minutia of everyday life. And now when you read Leviticus, you realize what? Because a particular people have now been called to serve God and are now holy, we now as Christians are what? Our holiness means we are separate. We are other. We are distinct. There's something about us. In an ideal world, there's something about the community of Christians which is radically and totally different than the rest of the world. Modernity's gotten wrong where people think if you vote a certain way, you are Christian, or if you have a certain idea, therefore you are Christian. No. According to Leviticus, the definition of someone who is called to be a servant of God means you are radically other. You are separate and therefore holy. Leviticus tells us that those who are redeemed must live a life that is radically different from the rest if they are to enjoy and worship God. The final thing I'll say about Leviticus is this. In addition to holiness, the other theme which is explained much in the book is the idea of atonement. Now, atonement basically means covering. So the point of all the animal sacrifices in the tabernacle was this. A person would commit a particular type of sin. They would then bring an animal to be sacrificed on their behalf to the tabernacle. The animal would be slaughtered, and symbolically speaking, now the blood would cover over the individual sin, because it goes by the principle, life for life. God is saying, for, when it comes to sin, either you die or something else dies. Now, the blood of these animals was never meant to be final. It was never meant to be complete, because guess what? If John Doe lies on Monday morning, he needs to come to the tabernacle and make a sacrifice. Guess what happens now, 20 minutes later? Let's say he lies again. What does John Doe now need? He now needs another sacrifice. So it was a continual, not final, frustrating system where the second anyone were to be stained by sin, a new sacrifice had to be offered. So it was an incomplete, insufficient process that went on and on and on and on and on. The sacrificial system in and of itself was never meant to be final because if you were a priest... Working in the tabernacle then, you know what you would have thought? You would have thought, this is frustrating. This is burdensome. This is never going to end. A priest would, who was thinking would say, God, we as a people who are really honest with ourselves can never offer enough sacrifices to pay the penalty. So once again, 
The sacrificial system wasn't an end in and of itself. It pointed forward to Christ. As uh, J. Vernon McGee says in his series Through the Bible, he basically says in the Old Testament, God forgave people's sins on credit where the blood of animals temporarily covered someone, and then when Jesus came, he basically comes in and paid the debt finally and fully from eternity past to to eternity future. For just as the tabernacle system was incomplete and insufficient, the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross was complete and wholly sufficient forever. Last two books are Numbers and Deuteronomy. The big idea of the book of Numbers is that it's a roadmap for navigating the wilderness of the world. It's when the ideal that God establishes comes face to face with real life. So what happened in Numbers? The people move from Mount Sinai. They're intended to to take an 11-day journey, which is less than two weeks. They're intended to take an 11-day journey from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea and then cross into the Promised Land. God, he gives them the law. He says how they are to conduct themselves and operate the tabernacle. But what happens? The people revolt, and the cardinal sin in the book of Numbers is unbelief. Basically, the people did not trust God. Moses' brother and sister revolt against him. The people want meat. When God says fight, they don't want to fight. When God says don't fight, then they want to go to war. It's a mess. And a journey that should have taken 11 days ended up taking 40 years as a result of unbelief. Historically, what number shows us, it's the reality of the Christian life, where the old self, the old rebellious self that doesn't trust God, they perish and die out, while with experience, as the people back then could each and every day see that God rained down manna from heaven and was providing at the end of four decades, the new generation now could look back and say, wait a minute, God really is trustworthy. God really is reliable. And it's that new generation now that trusts and has faith in the Lord. They are the ones who are now prepared to step into the promise and the more abundant life. Deuteronomy is the final book of the Pentateuch. The big idea of Deuteronomy is to love God and obey him. The only way someone can truly live the obedient life and to follow God's commandments is if they truly and earnestly love the Lord. As Deuteronomy 6 says, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our strength, and all of our might. Otherwise, without a true appreciation of, number one, who God is, what he has done, and what he has done both historically in the history of his people and what he has done in the history of the church. Without that recognition, all the, all the, the guidelines you've given us for life, they just become burdensome. And what ends up happening is that the individual becomes like the older generation in the wilderness where they basically say, this is burdensome, these are just rules I don't want to follow, forget about it. And the result of that is not the inheritance of the promise. But to love God with all of our heart, it is from that heart condition, having a renewed heart, which is what equips someone to inherit the promise.
In Deuteronomy as a whole, there is what's called a recapitulation of the law. Basically, as the old generation dies and the new generation is now ready to step into the promise, they return to God's instructions to remind them how they are to live before they inherit all the blessings God has promised them. Now, Deuteronomy ends with, literally speaking, the people of Israel on the border. They haven't stepped into the promised land yet. The book of Joshua, which is what we'll do next month, that is the book of conflict and conquest. Now, I'll leave by saying this. The promised land... Many people spiritualize the promised land. The promised land is not heaven. The promised land is a place of conflict and conquest. In heaven, there's no conflict. In heaven, there's no conquest because no one can go to war with God. The promised land was a physical place that was really real thousands of years ago. The promised land is relevant for us now because it represents God's ideal for his people. It's a physical place of blessings and abundance and an inheritance. But what God is showing us is that he has prepared that place for us. But what separates us, what keeps us in the wilderness, what keeps us wandering, what keeps us on the border and inhibiting us from stepping into that promise is what? Our lack of love for God with the resultant obedience. So if you really want to know what the, obe- what the prosperity gospel is about, it's love God. You love God, you therefore delight in his instruction, and therefore he has prepared a promise. He has prepared a blessing which you basically step into. So that's Exodus through Deuteronomy. Dear Lord, we thank you for the time you provided for us. We just ask you, Holy Spirit, to depart this knowledge and understanding deep within our hearts, that we may meditate on it and have clarity and meaningful answers to our understanding of your word. And Lord, as we continue reading through the Bible, we ask you to give us the animation, the motivation, and the diligence, O Lord, to diligently return to your word and seek you with all of our heart, all of our strength, all of our mind. In the name of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.